0: Alternative practice number three, honoring lineage. The following quote is by Leanne Battasamosaki Simpson from her book, As We Have Always Done. Quote, before I use work by writers, scholars, and artists outside of the Anishinaabe nation in my own writing and thinking, I ask myself the same series of questions. Where does this theory come from? What is the context? How was it generated? Who generated it? What was their relationship to community and the dominant power structures? What is my relationship to the theorist or their community or the context the theory was generated within? How is it useful within the context of my own people? Do we have a similar concept or theory? Can I use it in an ethical and appropriate way, my ethics and theirs, given the colonial context within which scholarship and publishing take place? What are the implications of citation, and do I have consent to take this intellectual thought and labor from a community I am not part of? Does this engagement replicate anti-blackness, colonialism, heteropatriarchy, transphobia? This critical process, I think, is a process that many indigenous academics already do naturally, and the answers are not easy nor will they be the same for everyone." End quote. In this module we will unpack the concept of lineage. More specifically, we will explore the practice of naming and honoring lineage as an antidote to extraction. For the purposes of this work, I am defining lineage as who, what, and or where something comes from. Its origins, its roots, For example, in the extraction module, we talked about the lineage of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as being rooted in Blackfoot worldviews. If extraction is the severing of the relationships that give an idea, concept, or practice meaning, then honoring the lineage of an idea, concept, or practice takes steps to uplift, resource, and credit the people, places, and relationships from which it emerged. We may resist acknowledging lineage for several reasons. For one, we may believe that we came up with the idea on our own and that it was just quote unquote inspired by another person, community or culture. Linked to this is the belief that we are smarter, more innovative and or more of a thought leader if we come up with something on our own versus in collaboration or in community with others. There is also the belief that knowledge that is new or novel is more valuable than knowledge that has been shared across time and space, across generations, geographies, and people. All of these beliefs are enforced by the prevailing systems of oppression, capitalism, colonialism, white supremacy, and patriarchy, among others. Notice that they all reinforce an either-or way of thinking that limits our agency to false binaries. Something is either novel or not worth sharing. Something is either your own or not important enough. This either-or thinking and the idea that there is only one right way are both characteristics of white supremacy culture. In this module, I want to share with you a few quotes from leaders who I feel speak with nuance about the importance of acknowledging and honoring lineage. The first set of quotes is an excerpt from a live conversation between author and social justice facilitator Adrian Marie Brown and culture strategist Sage Crump via the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute in July 2020. Sage Crump I quote people a lot, and I do it intentionally. For me, it's a political practice to keep other people's names in my mouth because white supremacy tells me that all my ideas are genius and they're only my own. And mostly, they're not. We're all impacted by other folks, and we are genius community. And how do I keep making that visible? Adrian Marie Brown. Because we are socialized by capitalism and socialized towards uplifting individual genius people that are isolated, it's so hard to move through the world and lift up ideas and share ideas without then getting put into that pedestal location or being put in that place of, oh, it's just you. That is an emergent practice to me, keeping other people's names in your mouth. It is one of the many things we can do to start to combat that concept of an individual genius that doesn't require us to disappear ourselves. I don't want to see black women disappear ourselves. I don't want to see us limit our capacity to be brilliant. I think we're both brilliant. I think we keep brilliant company. And I think we have brilliant ancestors and brilliant influences. And I think there's plenty of room for all of that. I think there's something for me about consistently reinforcing the community nature of it all. End quote. In this conversation, I really appreciate the ways in which Brown and Crump hold multiple truths rather than fall victim to the false binaries that I mentioned before. They acknowledge that they can name the lineage of an idea and all the people who contributed to it while not disappearing themselves and their own contributions. Both can coexist. Another human and teacher whom I've witnessed speak about lineage and attribution in a nuanced way is therapist and somatics teacher Prentice Hemphill. What follows is an excerpt from the transcript of a video that they published in April 2021. This video was a response to and a reflection on a series of incidents where people had either miscredited or not credited one of Hemphill's quotes around boundaries. The quote was, boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. In the video, Hemphill shares what follows. I understand that sometimes we hear something and we may think that we came up with the idea, We may think that it came to us, but it may have been something that she saw in passing that just kind of got embedded, and in her own journaling, something very similar emerged. I know that I don't own the words. I don't own boundaries. I don't own anything about the concept, but I do think it's really important to, as much as we can, name where our ideas come from, and when we don't do that, it's not just about ownership. It's about honoring. It's about appreciation. I think that's one of the things that colonization, that patriarchy, that white supremacy, that all these systems of oppression do, is that they are ahistorical. They like to have us pretend that we sprung forth on our own, that we are these pioneering individuals that create ideas alone. And we're not even. For me, the concept around boundaries and distance, I'm sure came to me from many different conversations with other people around boundaries. The thing is, for me, it's really important for me to define things in a way that is visceral, that I can feel them. So I have a lot of definitions for a lot of things that feel very visceral to me. And so I came up with that definition because my own values and priorities around visceral and felt definitions created that. So it's like there's so much wisdom, knowledge, insight from other people, relationships that I'm interacting with, But it's coming through the prism of me. My values, my intentions, my commitment. And that's what makes it unique. That's where we share our gifts. How do we take what is happening or what we're learning around us and let it shine through the prism of ourselves? I understand the complexity of that. No one statement can just emerge from one person and that's why I think it's actually really important to name where these things actually come from. Name the lineage of the thought that we are in and not disappear people's contributions to it. Because that's where we start to express these systems of oppression. Because the people that get disappeared, the people whose work gets disappeared, or that we even imagine that we can take without attributing, or reimagine that their name isn't valuable enough in order to be shared, that's how we keep replicating these patterns of oppression, and that's how we tend to disappear the contributions of black people. Of people of color, of indigenous people, of gender nonconforming people, of femme people. All the people who we imagine are unsightly or don't have power inside of these systems, we disappear them, their thinking, their contribution. We absorb it and we give it to those who we feel like have more power. And in that way, we keep reinforcing the way power is structured now by not allowing the truth to actually come out. By not allowing people to actually know where many of our insights and ideas and thoughts come from. It's frustrating. It pisses me off, honestly. When it happens like that, when it feels like there's a disappearing of me and someone feels like, because of their status or power, this is how I'm conceptualizing it. Because of their status or power, they can absorb my contribution and make it theirs without much consequence. That is so frustrating to me." Several things struck me about Hemphill's perspective. One is the observation that many of the prevailing systems of oppression, including colonization, patriarchy, and white supremacy, are ahistorical. They thrive on the erasure and forgetting of what happened in the past, the erasure of where something comes from, the erasure of lineage. When we take a moment to think about the power of lineage, The motivation of these systems to keep us distant from it are clear. The lineage, context, and relationships that give something meaning also give it the stability, rootedness, and resilience to hold up in the face of adversity. It's harder to co-opt, repackage, and commodify a culture, practice, or worldview when there's a profound understanding of its lineage. The lineage of a practice comes with instructions on how to care for it and how to protect it from exploitation. The other piece that struck me about Hempel's perspective is the question of whose work gets disappeared. For a sector that harps on the importance of citations, it is critical to examine who and what traditional research and academia deem as worthy of a citation. Whose last names do we forget to include? Whose doctorates do we forget to include? Whose names do we misspell? What knowledge products do we deem as credible? Who has access to creating those kinds of knowledge products? How does your valuation of Hempel's thinking change if I told you that they shared the previous insight via an Instagram video rather than in a Forbes article or a peer-reviewed journal? When do we name the source of where we heard something and when do we choose to leave out a name either consciously or subconsciously? Are there patterns within the ways we respond to this question? Finally, I appreciate Hemphill's distinction that attribution isn't about ownership. Ownership and possession are colonial constructs that have been leveraged to support commodification and other extractive practices. We are conditioned to believe that paying for something, owning something, confers upon us a set of rights to act upon it, modify it, and profit off of it however we wish. Attribution and lineage are about treating something as a gift rather than as a commodity and honoring the relationships that give a concept or practice meaning. You can attribute something without owning it, and owning something doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to honor its lineage. We will explore this idea further in the reciprocity module. Hemphill also goes on to talk about what it would be like to live in a world where attribution is normalized. They say, It's very, very frustrating to me because I think if we actually attributed, if we actually honored where things came from, the whole world would have to shift around that. The whole world would change. We would not be ashamed of where we came from because that's what it's about. Not being ashamed of where we come from, not being ashamed of who taught us, not pretending that we did things on our own, not pretending that our ideas just came from us in this moment, but we're able to like weave ourselves together, our thought together, our insight together, naming the unique contributions that each of us make without disappearing any of them. And that's what I really, really long for around this. End quote. I appreciate Hemphill naming that part of not attributing where we learn things from is rooted in shame. Again, this is something worth examining. Who and what are we taught to be ashamed of? Who and what systems benefit from that shame? What needs to shift in order to be able to take pride in crediting the lineage of the things that we know, believe, and practice? Personally, I think there is a level of rigor that comes with being able to delineate and credit the lineage of an idea. It shows that you have reached beyond the flavor of the week, or the buzzword of the month, or the trend of the year, and instead developed a robust understanding of where something originated and the ways in which it has evolved and been shaped into what it is today. Honouring lineage is a practice that needs to be practiced in order to be honed. Perfectionism and the fear of getting it wrong are the ways in which white supremacy culture keeps us from tearing it down. If you don't know the original source of a quote, concept, framework or practice, start by sharing who or where you learned it from. This allows space for the fact that an idea may have multiple sources or lineages, yet still allows you to acknowledge and credit the person, place, or context that gave you access to it. I think part of capitalism, and part of the practice of building leaders up, putting them on a pedestal, and knocking them down so swiftly when they make a mistake, is fueled by the notion that individual people come up with ideas, own them, and are ultimately responsible for what they become. Normalize asking people where or from whom they learned something. Hyperlink the people, organizations, and articles from whom you are sharing information or ideas so that they get the exposure. If you would like to reference a piece of content that isn't publicly available, ask the source of that content if they are comfortable with you sharing it and if and how they would like to be credited and or compensated. If someone is generous enough to make their resources available under a Creative Commons license, respect the conditions that come with that license. If you are profiting, in the form of either or both financial and social capital, from someone else's content or labor without their explicit and enthusiastic consent, notice the beliefs that make you feel like you can do that. And because every practice can be co-opted, continue to notice your motivations for engaging in this practice. Are you citing or sourcing people only when you have social or financial capital to gain from the affiliation? Are you citing or sourcing only when you know someone is watching to see that you are? Or is it a consistent practice no matter who it is or what you are citing? The following reflection prompts are intended to help you work through your own relationship to honoring lineage, as well as the beliefs that you hold around it. I invite you to pause after each question and note down any immediate responses that emerge before diving deeper into this exploration. What are some of the reasons as to why you have not acknowledged lineage in the past? Where do you stand on the following beliefs? Number one, I am smarter, more innovative, or more of a thought leader if I come up with something on my own versus in collaboration or in community with others. Number two, knowledge that is new or novel is more valuable than knowledge that has been shared across time and space, across generations, geographies, and people. And number three, Naming all of the people who contributed to an idea disappears or devalues my contribution to it. Whose work are you more prone to disappearing? Why do you think this is? What do you think of Prentice Hemphill's observation that many of the prevailing systems of oppression, including colonization, patriarchy, and white supremacy, are ahistorical? How much time or energy do you invest in investigating and understanding the lineage of a thought, practice, belief, or framework that you apply in your work? How does paying for or owning something change your perception of your responsibility to acknowledge its lineage? What role does shame play in shaping your beliefs and behaviors around acknowledging lineage? How does perfectionism or the fear of getting it wrong stop you from engaging in the practice of understanding and acknowledging lineage? Do you credit and acknowledge lineage even when you know that no one is watching to see that you are? I invite you to pause here and take some time to unpack your responses to these prompts before moving on to the next module.